from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking on to Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a gorgeous, clear, almost spring-feeling Wednesday morning. Cade Massey here hosting with the whole crew, all of my buddies and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Delighted to be here. We have a regular show in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. In the first half hour, the first quarter of the show, we are open lines, as we usually are. You guys, the listeners, can jump in, and we wish you would. Give us a shout. The number is one eight four four wharton It's always one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on email. You can send questions or comments by email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. Great way to reach us. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics, at WMoneyBall. Good way to catch us, even during the show. All right, guys, we have an open lines quarter ahead of us. Very curious, various things bouncing around. I'm interested in what has caught your eye in the world of sports. So I decided to look more deeply at the NBA because I've been focusing on the NBA a lot lately. It's a good sport to focus on. And it turns out if you go to the standings page of what this matter, it's ESPN or somewhere else, and you hit expanded, you can actually get a lot more statistics and information about the teams. You just discovered that? Yes. It's great. Most I, it sports is. do have it. It's amazing. I know. It, it's great. And the one statistic I looked at was, you know, we know the regular season is relatively meaningless for a lot of teams, but I started to look, what's our team's records against playoff teams? And you, it doesn't exactly have that, but it has record against teams 500 or above. So mm-hmm. let's assume those yeah. are r- roughly the playoff teams. There's only two, three teams in basketball right now, essentially, that have a above a 600 record against playoff teams. So one of them is the Bucks, who are 14 and eight. That's the only team in the Eastern Conference. As a matter of fact, there's only two teams in the East, three teams in the Eastern Conference that have winning records against teams above 500: the Bucks, the Celtics, and the Heat. In the Western Conference, the Lakers, the Nuggets, the Clippers, and the Rockets all have winning records above 600 against teams with 500 records. So to me, I don't know how you have to pick against... Just give me an example. The Sixers are 12-18 and 18 against teams with winning records. And here's one that's shocking. The Magic, who are right now in the seventh seed in the East, they're 4-25 and 25 <laughs> against wow. teams with winning records. And so... First, the fact that there's a lot more strength in the West than the East. That's one statistic. And second, it's amazing how hard it is to have a good record. I assume somebody would have a 700, 750 record against 500 teams. It's just not true. It's that U-shape we've been talking about all all, all season. Exactly. The great teams and the horrible and almost nothing in the middle. I know, but yeah. I'm just saying, wouldn't you expect some team to have at least, let's say, a two-thirds record against winning teams? Yeah, I would have. I mean, and I, there's I, none. I, certainly, zero. If, you, if you'd come in here and said that the Lakers had like a six, like a they're po- fifteen and ten, or point seven against like you know a winning record team, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have been shocked by that. Certainly. Well, a, a I different guess way. I'm not sure I expected a it. A different but, ways I could have asked you was 
what's the distribution of the maximum? In other words, what do you think is the maximum record against any team, against yeah. winning teams? You all probably would have guessed at least two-thirds. No, I, I don't think so. Because you wouldn't think, have guessed no, two-thirds? I would, no, put because, it, I would have put it above 60%. 60% certainly. is, is, is a, because two-thirds is, is, look at what's the best record, right? Yeah, start with that. Start, well, the and, Bucks, and the Bucks are fifty-one and nine. Okay, so, so eight fifty, eight fifty. But remember, they've had an opportunity to just eat up all these crappy teams. And well, by the way, I just told you the record against five hundred teams: fourteen and eight. That leaves thirty-seven and one yes. against teams below five hundred. I mean, this is this is what's yeah. happened in basketball. No, I, I mean, and if you told me the Bucks' record, I would have been, I would be surprised that they weren't above. You know, uh, above two thirds against like good teams. They're not it's pretty really hard. good. It's pretty hard to assemble that kind of record and not be above just, two thirds with good teams. Let me just give you two thirds is right? two to one. We yeah. understand what That's that is. Right. Well, maybe our listeners Pre- don't <laughs> appreciate the clarification on that. And remember, we're doing, we got an audience, guys. We have an audience. <laughs> I, I this is just shocking to me. Either way, that was my that was my uh, what caught my eye on sports in the NBA. It just I just was shocked that there yeah. wasn't a team that was at least two and one. Because well, let me ask you a different question. Let's say the Lakers were to play a team above five hundred in the first round of the playoffs. You th- your projection then would be four and two. That's it's going to take them six games to beat that team. No, I think they probably sweep. Well, again, listen, like right, well, well, no, no, no. Here we go again. Playoff basketball is not season basketball. Yeah. The players turn it on and they do act. They want the rest. They'll win it out in five games. I think it's 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 a crushing. Or another way of saying, like I think what I, I mean, one aspect in which regular season basketball is different from playoff is the teams aren't going as hard and there's load management and all these things kind of push the distribution like almost push it towards less extreme and and, and considering how extreme it is like, anyway g- that's g- pretty g- amazing given the lack given how like much uh anti parity or whatever you want to call it there is in the NBA um if teams really win full out in the regular season, I think we'd see even more extreme records well, than we actually it, it's do. It's interesting right? that you said anti-parity, because I want me transition now to college basketball. College basketball. Where there's extreme I, parity. Well, I just thought I would list, just quickly for our listeners, the top 15 teams in college basketball as of last night. Now, a couple of these are obviously the ones you would expect to be up there. I'll start with number one, Kansas. That's not a surprise, Kansas, number one. Gonzaga, number two. Historically, they've been well. Number three is Dayton. <laughs> yeah, didn't number, see that one coming. Right, number four is Baylor. Okay. okay. Yeah. Num- Baylor is usually fighting up there? No, uh, no. Ba- Baylor Baylor no. is this crazy athletic program. Every time where... people, li- I mean, I, I it seems like every year in, in, in the, in the uh, March Madness, I discover some university. Well, let me keep going. Let me <laughs> you keep, know, some new university well, Baylor... dates it this year, I guess. So, so, I but, let's, real quick, yeah. on, on Baylor, I mean, they are, I, it's hard to understand how they're doing what they're doing. They A couple of generations ago, I mean, like, Athletic generations ten years ago, they were they were cheating their way to the top in yeah. both major um, athletic sports. Right. Now they're doing it. You know, who knows? Legitimately, pres- presumably how do we know not. That? But they're <laughs> back. They stop stealing signs. It's, 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 what, it's, it's amazing that they're back. <laughs> no, it's amazing the Patriots have been able to recover from each of these cheating scandals too. <laughs> well, <laughs> sort of. Let, not in my mind. Let's go to number five, San Diego State. This is the one that blows me away. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So San Diego State, number six, no shock, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Number seven, team that's been, you know, sometimes been good, Florida State. Number eight, a team that a blast I haven't the heard past. Duke yet. I'm, I'm not there yet. They're still... They've, that's Duke, amazing. Duke's lost a bunch of games this year. Number eight is Se- Seton Hall. If you were, oh, my, mm, No, yeah. if you're our generation, we know you know Seton Hall. I remember hearing about that. But yeah. number nine, another blast on that, Maryland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ten is finally another 
traditional team, Louisville. Okay. All okay. right, number 11, Creighton. Whoa. I still haven't gotten. Now I'll get to them. Duke. Okay. So let me just list this again. Dayton, <laughs> Baylor, San Diego State, FSU, Seton Hall, Louisville, and Creighton are all ranked ahead of Duke. So you talk about Pirate. By the way, after Duke comes Oregon. Okay, can you tell me why? Can we give me some insight? Why is it? Why in this year of all other years this is happening? Is it something I think to do I, with uh, the very young players? And yeah, they're not so playing well together. It takes no, a while. I mean, I'll, because I'll all this one and doneness. I yeah, that's well, one of the major reasons people tend to give for the parity in college basketball is the one and doneness. Which, okay, but, but but we've had that for a while. So yes. is it taking a while to settle in? What's what's why is it are, so? Are we sure? Are we sure now? we're in a year of uh, 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 unusual, uh, parody? Uh, of unusual parody? Like I mean, like or unusually come, bad rankings. Come, come, like come, uh, rankings come, generally uh, come get better. March Madness. Are you know? Well, that's coming these... in a week and a half, so it's not like there's more. There's no, not no, a no. Lot but I mean, are, I, I mean, you know, you'd have to first convince me that there's going to be more rando teams in the March Madness tournament than usual. Because I mean, I've heard of some of these teams. But yeah, you mean to like fill this, out a bracket? Well, they're all in. You mean the Sweet Sixteen? Well, well, there's two different levels. So I mean, first, are there more randos in the tournament entirely? Then are there going to be more randos in the Sweet 16, <laughs> you know, and then are there going to be any randos in the Final are you, Four? Are you being disrespectful of these I programs? mean, I, it sounds disrespectful when I want to call them randos. <laughs> Random teams, I don't know. You, you know what I mean. Unexpected. Non-traditional basketball power. Well, here, here, let me just say the following. In my mind, there are, in the top 15 teams, I'll even put Villanova in there. Obviously, they've won two national titles recently, yeah. but historically, no. I would say there's only five teams out of the top 15 that are historically high-ranked teams. Kansas, Kentucky, Louisville, Duke, and Villanova. The other 10... That has to be more than normal. Okay, yeah, I mean, this, I, this, it sounds pretty compelling. Wait, is this more the Blue Bloods aren't as good as they have been, or is this that there are some unusually unusually high number of good teams from the outer regions? Well, here's what we know. I mean, North Carolina, I think for the first time in 40 years or something, has a tremendously losing record. Like, they have to win the... You know the ACC. Are they requiring tournament. their students to go to class now? Is that the deal? I could be. <laughs> could be what's. It could be what's happening. Zing. Uh, that, but again, they're you know a historically good team. All I'm commenting on is I was just comparing the parity there to the lack of parity in other. Like if I told you, let's go to college yeah. football for a second. Let's say we went to the top. 16 no, We're getting teams. the opposite of that in college football. No, no, that's what I'm commenting on. So there's got to be something about college basketball. I think we're in an unprecedented era of parity in college football as well. A team that's not Alabama or Clemson won the championship. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I'm being somewhat sarcastic here. But, I mean, again, like, college football is very top-heavy. But it's all, like, I, I guess I'm arguing is, is this... College basketball has always seemed let's obviously go back. more. There's let's more go back kind to our, of random Shane, let's teams go back in the to tournament versus let's go college back to well, Shane, Shane, let's go back. Shane's asking a very good question, which is, okay, anomalies happen. How sure are you that this is the outlier we're making yeah. it to be? Like, how would we operationalize that? Let's yeah. let's think about that. I, I got, if we're going to quantitatively, mine. I was going to yeah. say I'm going to go back to the metric that I always like to go to, which for me is helpful. Doesn't make it the right one. Which is, so how many teams would I have to give you for you to take them versus the field? Right. And I say in college football, I don't think I'll take six and you can have the field. In college football for the national championship? Yes. Yeah. Before, oh, before, I'll take before, the six before, right away. Before the I'll season? Yeah, or, before the season. Yeah. It's got to be before the season. It's, it's, okay. it's worse okay. than you think it is. 
So right. maybe, I'm really? saying, I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, I want you to put it. But I'm saying, in college basketball, there's no way you would take but, six. But, but again, you're you're, you're, you're making a distinction between college football, and college basketball, and you've well, already compare, got that argument in no, the no, sense but that Kate I do believe to compare across sports. I'm coming no, up with a metric. I, I, no, I understand. No, I'm actually but, not asking you to compare across you, sports. No, I'm. It's within a sport across t- over exactly. time. I'll do the same. Yep. I you still use the same metric. Okay. How many teams would you have to take? And I can track that over time. Yeah. I don't think if you went. I think if you went back to college basketball in you know the John Wooden days, the 1970s, you wouldn't have to go past half a dozen teams that had a chance. You've always complained, you know, the Yankees racked up all these titles in years where it was the Yankees yeah, in the no, World no, Series. And, no, no. How and, many teams no, would you have to right. take? I have and to you're say, thinking macro time. On macro time scales, like historically, I am totally would buy into an argument that there's more parity or at least more teams involved in championship contending actually, spe- in, in bas- college basketball. Have, it's just, you, you're, you're arguing this year specifically spe- versus like kind of locally on a micro time level. I'm not sure that this year necessarily represents some jump in, in parity. I guess is what I'm arguing. I, I think we need to be more formal about this. You're just sort of, I mean, a way. My think of a way to, to, Okay, so let's go to the six. I mean, I have, how many? I don't know about college football. First of all, it's a long season, and there's a playoff season, and the NCAA is very is, is really random. So we know that the NCAA six against the field is a very bad move. But how many teams have won the college bas- college football championship in the last twenty years? College football. Football. How many different eight, eight teams? Eight nine. Okay, you're telling me that I can't in the beginning of the season take six teams and not have a commanding lead over the field? I think I, I am do. telling you. Can. you can. It's, su- you, it's surprising. Really? It's surprising. Um, it's surprising. It is very surprising. Well, I am, and I'd this, like to dig into this because it seems to me that at this least is, this is four my, or five teams should be on, at well, least well, 50%. Well, Rick, Rick, it, Adi, this is my favorite thing about preseason college football is how everyone is too sure they know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, consider, for example, what probability people would have had on LSU. Well, LSU that was, that was, was the question. Not, would we have picked LSU? Would LSU have been in that six and, and I know prior to last season? That's just an anecdote, but I say this every year ahead of time, and it's because the field's so big. The, 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 the number of schools that play Division One football, even though they can't all get in there, there's a lot of them. There's going to be somebody unexpected uh, every clear, year. That I wasn't know. the metric we debated last year, which I agree with you, Cade, but the metric we debated debated last year was you asked us to pick a four-tuple which was who are the four teams going to be and how much probability that's goes right. on those that's very different it than is. saying i'm going to pick that's a right. set that's and the winner's going to be in that set that's i agree fair. i'm horrible yeah. and i've been horrible every year of this show in say every year kate asks us and i'm like oh i don't know 50 percent chance it's going to be these four and kate's like it's two percent or three percent or whatever the number is i'm horrible at picking four tuples i don't think i'm bad at picking sets okay. of six to give yeah. me a one tuple it's a good yeah. distinction I, I mean i have to say i almost want to do this right now but if, i think i can write down six college football teams and over the next Do 20 years oh. we'll see what how many how many championships are won by those six and i would guess it's going to be more than 50 percent well that's i mean just, i just think that the, if you look historically you're telling me only eight teams have won championships yeah, in the I, last I, I i yeah that's right so what six would you pick for next year you'd pick alabama clemson lsu ohio state for sure yep probably georgia and oklahoma now maybe oregon's going to sneak in but there's going to be consensus. Those are six of anybody's I top forget, did eight. Did you say or Ohio so? State or no? Yeah. You said yeah. Ohio State. Oh, yeah, for sure. They might be number and one. And I'll roll them again, more or less, with okay, slight now, changes and what, each year. And so you're saying, what probability want to put on that? Uh, I would say more than 50%. Yeah, maybe, comfortably more yeah, than 50%. So. Certainly more than basketball, which I think, is what I think started, what you're. But. I think what you're what you're referring to is that no one team has nearly the right probability that, they, that people think it is. But as a set, because you have to think about when it's wrong, who's it going to be wrong to? Right. 
It's correlated. Right. Well, that's another question, Adi. Don't you think this also says something? We talk about mechanism design or tournament design all the time on this show. Let's say what we're all saying is true. If you forget the academic part for just a second, if you get about that it's a business and it would devalue some other bowls, wouldn't your metric then suggest that they need to add some randomness, like maybe go to eight teams to therefore make it? I mean, I'm just saying you're making an that, art. Uh, here, here's, a, here's an interesting feature, though. Does that add randomness or does that reduce randomness? Because a lot of people now are saying a team can get, any team can get into the Final Four, but not any team can it, win. It seems like the most, I think, I think the Alabama most having to play an extra game by definition, even if it makes it... Let's let's just. I mean, it has to. It has to lower the probability, even if the top four teams are ninety eight percent chances except, of winning. Except the stochastic bottleneck, if you want to call it that, right now in college football, is getting into that into that like playoff that that group of four at the end. So you can have some teams of your like kind of magical six that lo- it's more likely you, you're going to have teams in your magical six lo- losing out on that because it's so. Randomly Which, driven by like I, you know I, one I, loss in a season, basically. This is why I love the show because I'm know? also a Bayesian and I update. I stand corrected. There's yeah. two sources of randomness. I can't yeah. condition on those yeah, four right. teams that's being yeah. in. That's right. Now yeah. you add eight, I can almost guarantee you Alabama's in. I mean, right, I, I, right. You'd have to give it, me it, a five hundred to one it, it, it odds almost, that Alabama's not in the top eight. So that's right. right. Now the question is, which source of randomness would add more? The that's second, right. the extra yeah. game versus the what's the probability they don't even make it in? That's a great point. Thank you. I hadn't thought about no and. I mean, like it's it's kind of like a pie in the somewhat pie in the sky question. It's a little bit more reason, you know. It's 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 even more tangible towards like the NFL considering uh, and baseball considering actually changing their playoff formats for next year. I'm and s- does that actually increase kind of the this idea that like a random team will win the championship, or does it actually decrease it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's absolutely a fascinating point. You know, um, what's also interesting is you could also imagine building your team differently. If it gets wider, like for yeah. example, here's an example. Let's imagine you. Let's imagine they decided in baseball to put in half the teams. Yeah. Then I would say the way you should build your baseball team is have spend all your money. I don't literally mean all. Most of your money on two great starters because you're going to make it into the playoffs anyway because everybody does. And then come playoff time, you know, you've got Chris Sale and David yeah. Price. You've got you know Strasburg and, and whoever. And you, you know, probably I, I would I would anticipate you'd see also kind of the way like in in season strategy would change in a way that's kind of more reflects what I I think basketball does. You know, you'd see even I mean, there's already load management in baseball. There kind of has to be. Uh, on the pitching side, but you'd see even more load management in on the hitting side. You know, players would get like thirty games off a season or something like that because you know if, if you can kind of get into the playoffs no matter what, then why why not load manage in in anticipation of October? I also wanted to ask you a question as someone that that studies this. I even let me tell you why I like my metric, not because I think it's necessarily that predictive. I always like to study the concept of. Let's imagine you went to somebody on the street and you asked them a question. Like, I don't think people are... I think the way I frame this metric, you could go to somebody who's not an expert and they could give you an answer that has some level of face validity. Like, I think the way I'm asking the question is one that someone can give you expert judgment about. Remind us how you're asking the question. So I would go to somebody and say, let's take any given sport and say, I'm going to give you some... You get to pick the teams... How many teams would you have to pick so that you would be willing to take an even bet 
on your set of teams versus yeah. the rest of the yeah. teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's something people can understand. I get 10, you get the field. I get 15, you For get sure. the field. I, I think it could apply to golf. It could apply to tennis. Yeah. It could apply to basketball, football. I but think it's an elicitation the, procedure I, that would I, actually people could answer. Because it's in, it, it's, it has this nice feature that is both intuitive to the responder but also informative about yeah. the actual, what's going on. But you said you think it might have some face validity. What do you mean by that? I just mean that um, people would start naming teams you could actually go back in time and say, and calibrate and say yeah. wow i uh, i'll use your metric Kate. you said eight teams or whatever the number is have won the national title in the last 20 years suppose i say four and then someone provided you um mr M- uh, professor massey um you know that eight playoff eight teams have won the college football playoffs in the last 20 years oh I'm probably not that calibrated. Maybe I need to up my number. So I think people, it's got face validity and that, at, back to Adi's point, people could actually start naming teams. They'd have to think about counter teams, like, oh, well, if it's not going to be Alabama, then who is it going to be? Yeah. And also, you could provide people data that would be, so what is the average number in that sport over years? And people could look at that average and say... What's the, what's even the maximal over? And I'll go back to your point, Shane. If you think in macro time periods, over what macro time period would the number you pick yeah. not have given you fifty percent? Matter of fact, it's a great right. way to do it. I mean, it's a great yeah. moving window type of way to think about it. Yeah, and I I don't know about co- enough about college basketball history other than like you know I, I think I looked once and I'm like man UCLA won like a lot back in the day or something like that. You know, it seems like certainly we are in an area of increased parity relative to what we were kind of back in like the '60s and '70s. I follow college I, basketball a lot, and I've never seen this. Name list of names so, of so, college right, teams right. in the so, top so, so 15. So you're kind of arguing that this year, e- even within the kind of like the, even acknowledging that like kind of there's a, a larger trend towards parity that's occurred on kind of the decade scale, you're thinking, you're saying that this year specifically, there seems to be like kind of an, an unusual outlier towards parity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it also is, I think it's partly what Kate had described earlier. I think actually analytics has actually possibly changed that in some way. For sure, it has. You know, in other words, I you know I hate to say it, but three is greater than two for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to a different place. Oh, sorry. So I just training, you, you more training, meant that, like, and study, and film no, study. No, and analytics can can help to bridge, like, gaps in, like, recruiting and stuff like that. Is oh, that this, what you're so y'all kind are of making arguing? A, y'all are making a, a more interesting global point that that it's a little bit field leveling in a mm-hmm. way, and I think that sounds right. It also provides some strategies for the less uh, talented teams. I was going to a very practical thing. I think the ratings are better now oh, um, than they used to be. That's a different issue. And yeah. it happen- it, I'm sure this is true in football, and it kind of has to be true in basketball as well. Um, but, you know, we have been playing one and done for a while, and it's possible that these teams that don't have the top players are getting better at recruiting and building teams to compete against that. And so if you, it, so we, we know that seniority and experience matters in the in the in the, in March Madness when we get to that and something I, I don't know the Dayton's and the San Diego States of the world right now but my prediction from just guessing from the outside is that they're playing a lot of senior guys or at, le- at least they got a lot of guys with a lot of experience yes and that is the way to counterbalance the recruiting advantages that the Kentuckys and Dukes have. Well, let me ask a question related to something you just said, Kate, and maybe Adi and your students that are doing a lot of work on sports analytics have studied this. Is it a better rating system? Like, for example, could we look at, let's say, you know, let's say there's 32 games happening. Let's forget the play-in games. There's 32 games happening in round one. How many 
upsets are there according to the seating or let's not even use the yeah. seating. Let's use the power rating. Good. Yeah. Could we go back in time and recalibrate the seasons and say, look and forget the outcomes of the playoffs. Have you guys actually looked at whether analytics has helped rating systems? Because I know my son, but others are working on rating systems. Yeah. Well, I mean, about 72, 73% of the, of the games are won by the favorite um, does that mean anything? Um, hardly. Most, a lot of the games for, in the early rounds are substantially one side is substantially favored, but and and it quickly gets pretty close. I don't think you'd be able to actually measure that in the tournament. There just aren't enough games where where I mean it would just be a couple in either direction. Maybe over many years you could you right. could detect yeah. something, but um, it would take a, a lot this, of data to, wanna, to wanna, measure a small effect. I want to build on this because this is an absolutely fantastic point. Because a lot of listeners out there are saying, well, and we talk about this in educational testing, my home mm-hmm. field, if you'd like, all the time. People say, well, what do you mean? There's 32 games. You're pointing out that 25 or 26 of those are somewhat meaningless because the odds are so extreme yeah, that they yeah. don't actually provide you that much information about the rating system. So it's, it's really a, few, a small number a of games, games right, right at the knife yeah. edge, right at the 50-50 And it would point. take a lot of seasons before you were it's able great to measure point. it out. Great point. By the way, you guys were talking about the college football and the preseason odds of winning the championship. Let's just ref- Let me give you some specifics on that real quick. And with a little reflection, I think we can show how extreme it is. So what do you think it was last year? And just remember, it was in the, it was the peak of, you know, Chalky, chalky, Clem, Clemson, Alabama. Everyone had it from the year before. It was super chalky, and people thought, oh, here we go again. So what do you think those odds were, the probabilities were, just for those two teams, for The example? preseason probability? Preseason probability that either Clemson or Alabama would win the championship last season. Okay, the, the Vegas odds, uh, the Massey Peabody, just, or... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you Massey Peabody, so I'm, so I'm going to take us as representative. I would say Vegas ratings. was over 50% for the two of those. I'm going to give you I'm gonna give you Massey Peabody, which is right in there with, with you know... Yeah. FPI and and Bill's SMB my, plus my intuition was about where Shane's was somewhere in the forty percent range. Yeah, so that we this is I'm going to go back to seventeen as to eighteen as well. But for nineteen, we had Alabama way up high, and we might have been a little high relative to the market, but we had them at thirty six percent alone. Clemson was sixteen, so just with those two teams, you're at fifty three percent. And if we were talking top six. It, you know, Georgia had another 15, so now we're at 68, yeah. 69. Oh, there's LSU, bing! At 3%, 4%. So one of the interesting things here, this is, I mean, things are wrong all the time. 36%, you're still less likely to, yep. not, to get it than not. Now go back a year, and it's a little bit more even. But what was the top six? About 80%? 85. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. But yeah. in, 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 in 18, less so. So 18, we were much more distributed between Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia. And again, I'm taking us as just kind of representative of the FPIs and Bill Connollys of the world. So in 18, the top six were added up to 65%. So you're still you're getting more you're getting much greater two to one. Yeah, you're getting much greater. <laughs> your your intuition on that was right on. Would you ever use? Um, I always like doing this, but I don't know if you guys also do this as statisticians. Do you guys like to use facts like that? to calibrate your model after the fact. Let's imagine Massey Peabody comes out for 2020. And for whatever reason, maybe you and Rufus make some changes. But all of a sudden, the top five or six teams only has 40%. You'd say, wow, that's Mm. kind of a strange thing. That doesn't seem to match the marginal probability that I think is true. I'm just wondering, do you guys, do do all of you as statisticians do that? Careful models shrewd, but I think probably... Um, Most people who model these things do it at the very, very top end. Like, if some team wins that we didn't expect that our models didn't expect wins the whole thing then you're like well 
why did that happen? You go back and be like, oh, well, why was LSU so low, blah, blah, blah. And so you, I think there are, like, calibrations. I just think they tend to be very – exception. They, they tend to be – mix in a lot of the kind of, ba- like, luck part of outcome, you know, outcome bias into them. Like, you're only looking at the top yeah. team and did you get the top team right or did you get the championship two teams right. right. To do a more full Which sort of, yeah. like, did we get the top 20 teams right, right or whatever is, is the more careful statistical thing to do. But I think people tend to I, – I, I think you probably tend to try and recalibrate your models based on, on, on a lot of kind of, like, very – you know, just the very top couple teams, and there's a lot of kind of like luck in there too. So we we've had to learn about this, and you know, we're not just kicking out rankings; we're running sims, and these probabilities yeah. are coming from simulations. And it does provide a calibration opportunity, very important one, because if you don't, if you're not careful, you say this is how good Clemson is at the start of the year, this is how good Alabama is at the start of the year, and you can run a sim on that. But you're gonna you're gonna bake in too much certainty because there's a lot of uncertainty about that number, and so. In the sim you run, you need to allow those numbers to move around. You need to allow some learning. You need to allow yourself to be wrong about those numbers. And where that plays out is you run a bunch of sims. You need to have the right number of anomalies happening in these mm-hmm. sims. So you run 10,000 sims. You need a certain. You need to be wrong the right amount of time. Yeah. And that's the kind of calibration well, that we do in our sims. And we've had to learn. It's like we've had to tweak the noise in our sims, noise being we've had to decrease our confidence in our predictions in order – to be wrong the right amount of time, matching history. I was thinking about, I, that's great to hear. I thought you were going to say something else, which is let's imagine you do 10,000 simulations and let's imagine 4,000 of them lead to uh, the top six teams winning 50%, 60%, whatever you think is a reasonable number of times. In some sense, those are based on some priors. The other sims you eliminate and therefore eliminate those as being reasonable priors. I thought you were actually going to use that piece of information to help set your priors because any priors that would lead to an outcome that you would deem unreasonable given the marginal probabilities, you get rid of those as reasonable priors. That's a different use of it. Yeah, yeah, that is different. We don't, we don't, we don't iterate over priors in, in quite that way. It's, it's, it's. I was using it actually as a prior selection yeah, mechanism. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, fellas, as we wrap up this quarter, what do you take away from this conversation for? Because we're talking now about football forecasts, and it's March. What should we say, given what we've just talked about? What should we say about? We've been really talking about college basketball. So, as we roll into March Madness, what is the implication of this conversation for the way we think about March Madness? I'm. I happen to love the. I like the upsets that happen. And when I say upsets, I mean in this case we're gonna. In my view, we're gonna see more teams in the Sweet Sixteen this year that aren't the traditional teams that make it there. The yeah. powerhouses that make it there. And I think that'll be interesting to see that there's a lot more uncertainty and parity in college basketball this year than others. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm. I'm I guess I'm not. You. You know better than me. I'm. I'm naturally skeptical. I will wait until they're actually in that Sweet Sixteen before I get particularly excited. Yeah, about I'm going. These I'm going to just essentially uh, jump off of Shane's remarks and remind everyone to shrink to preseason priors. Yeah, yeah, good. It's this famous thing that Nate Silver put early on. This is 10, 12 years ago. He said the secret sauce in my March Madness brackets are preseason rankings. And that he had, quote, discovered empirically that despite having played 30 or 35 games or whatever. Which seems like a lot. Seems mm-hmm. like a lot. You, you think that know. you don't need preseason numbers anymore. Those regular season games are noisy enough that you have still signal in the preseason number. So 
shrink back to Adi's version of that, shrink back to preseason exactly as much as my I have the I have the reflexive, you know, if you're gonna tell me how uncertain it is and the Baylors and the San Diego States, my reflexive my cynicism is okay, I'm gonna bet on Kentucky. And here's what I'll do in our in, in our, our yeah. nine thirty hour uh, when we have an open uh, discussion period again, by then I will have looked how many of these top fifteen teams were actually in the preseason good, rankings good. by the top by the earlier on the season. All right. Appreciate it guys. All right. First quarter of Wharton Moneyball is in the books. We still have three quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Whole crew in here this morning. Cade Massey hosting Shane Jensen to my right. Eric Bradlow to my left. Audie Weiner. Straight away, some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, year-round. Guys, I think this would be officially the sixth-year anniversary show. First week of March, man. We started the first week of March. Dion Simpkins, we were just babies back then, Dion. How oh. did how did you bring us along? How did you how did you, how did you do it? What did Slowly. You th- <laughs> yeah. What did you think? What did you think that first week or two? Yeah, I I, th- I think you guys were great when you started though, <laughs> and then went downhill. From yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I was actually going to give a shout out to our show. I learned a lot from listening to Shane, Adi, and Cade this morning already. Things about statistics and about you know the uncertainty that I didn't even think about. So I was actually going to give credit to the show to say I hope our listeners have, but I've learned something today. So it's been good fun. We uh, we hope we have another six years ahead of us. Appreciate everybody listening. Many, many thanks to Dion Simpkins for bringing us into the world and helping us along, hitting us on the back, keeping us going. Uh, Matty D., our second producer, now the longest-serving producer, I believe, if I'm not wrong, longest-serving producer on the heels of Matty Johnson, who brought this thing to life. Anyway, we are um, rolling into the second quarter of the show, and this quarter we're delighted to have Sarah Bailey join us. Sarah's out there on the West Coast. She is a football statistician for, you may have heard of them, the Los Angeles Rams. Excited to have Sarah on the show. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. You are, are you calling from the West Coast this morning, Sarah? Yes, I am. Oh, good morning. Many, many, many thanks to you. We're always uh, obliged and appreciative of those on the West Coast. It's early for you, especially when you get the eight. You got to negotiate better with Matt. What do you? What are you doing with the eight thirty (laughs) slot? See, I'm usually up at this time anyway, so I was like, I'll just get. Okay, are you one of those? And do that. Are you one of those West Coast people who goes for an hour run and then a swim before (laughs) dawn? Sort of. Yeah, yeah there it is. <laughs> That's all right. Well, listen, Sarah, we want to talk uh, football analytics, but can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into that? You, 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 it wasn't a direct route, right? So what, what were you doing before you ended up with the Rams? Yeah, so I, I did not take a direct route. I was kind of all over the place. But um, after my undergrad, I, I interned with the Chargers and did more digital media analytics. Just was an opportunity, honestly, to get my foot in the door of sports and see – what I liked, if I liked the cultures, if I liked everything involved there. And then I worked as an actuary for a little bit and uh, kind of like, can I do actuarial work? Is this for me or am I going to go back to school? Sarah, can I stop uh, you there? And and can you just describe to us and to our audience what actuarial work is? Like what what was your daily life and what were -hmm. were your bosses doing if you had stayed in that field? Yeah, so um, I was in health insurance. So I was with... uh, Molina Healthcare down in, in Long Beach, actually. So I was still in California, 
and um, you're really like you're trying to figure out what people people should pay essentially for for their insurance for their their work done how much we're willing to pay based on your risk assessments it's a lot of risk like it's fast in it and it's science in that it's it's a lot of um risk assessment and and uh what people uh like how prone you are to certain diseases and you know like mm-hmm. when your insurance is high like it's because of actuaries or um there's other types too there's financial actuarial work there's uh, where you're looking at the markets and derivatives and um you so essentially like to get anywhere in it you have to pass a million exams so i took like three of them and, and got and got three of them in and uh it's it's very profitable my bosses did very well for themselves um a lot of the models were built out when i was first starting you know you just sort of running through the the sheets and and applying it but it was very much like uh you're working from eight to five eight to six eight to seven and then you're studying from seven to midnight and then ah, you're getting okay. up and do it all over again so okay once you get past it, I think it, I think it can be good. I know people that loved it, but for me, it was just it wasn't my thing. Um, no disrespect, it was such a good company. They were amazing. They they were um, they were great, but I, it just wasn't wasn't my thing. So it does feel like um, a, a far a far cry from the San Diego Chargers. I mean, that's a big that's an abrupt shift. Yeah, yeah. When I was in, so I, I mean, I started as a bio major in college, and I just. I didn't really know what to do with it. It was sort of what people did if they were relatively smart. And mm-hmm. um, it was like, oh, be a doctor. But then I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I really want to deal with people all that much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stats is great. Yeah, no. Stats is great, great if you don't want to deal with people. <laughs> I mean, maybe for somewhat, but um, not, not complaining, I guess, all the time. So I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I was talking to my math professor, and he was trying to poach me into the math, the math realm. And... Um, yeah, I was like, well, what do you do with a math degree? Like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, eventually you decided to go to Sam, Simon Fraser, and I, yes. I believe you crossed paths with our, our buddy Luke Bourne, who seems to have trained about half of the analysts in professional sports these days. Yeah, so Luke, um, I very, I didn't have a very, like, um, I didn't work with him a lot. I had, like, one class with him and briefly chatted with him somewhat on on this and everything, what he was doing and his data in basketball. Um, my advisor was Tim Sports, who was also the mm-hmm. other sports person um, there. And that's that's why I chose Simon Fraser, too, because I was looking for schools that were um, doing sports analytics where I could get some kind of edge. And um, honestly, it was good because I'm from Canada, so it's great being uh, back in Canada, okay. um, being, cl- being close to family for a couple of years, and it was cheaper. <laughs> right. So, so you do that training at Simon Fraser, and then you start aiming for professional sports. Is that right? And did you want to be in football, or did you care? Um, I, I didn't care right off the bat. Like I wanted to be in football, I really did, but I didn't think it was very realistic. Okay. So for me, it was it was anything that will take me, I'll I'll go. Um, I started applying while I was still in school, and ended up getting a couple of offers, and and the Rams just. It was it was what I wanted to do, and I was shocked that football was high was like getting more into it. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually got an offer in like November, and I was remember that they were they joked they're like, "So are you sure you want to finish your bachelor's? Yeah, you right. Want to come down here?" And I'm like, "No, I got a month left." <laughs> so um, 
Well, they're always hungry for the work, right? They'll take they'll take you as soon as they can get you. They're not quite used to these academic schedules as much. <laughs> what 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 skills did you bring to the Rams? What skills do you think it was that you had that 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 appealed to them? Uh, I think for them, they were looking for a more traditionally um, like stats based person to kind of expand their their use of analytics and make it more advanced, I guess, in, in terms of predictions instead of just. Uh, summarizing data, which is also really beneficial, but not just listing statistics, yep. but actually doing doing the data, the data analytics. So I think that was the first thing they got them. And just um, really, when I interviewed, they you know they kind of went through my my resume and understood that I had the academic background. And it was a lot of just how well I fit with their culture and whether you can get along with their coaches, their trainers, them, the GM, the, the scouts, like really looking at your interpersonal skills and, and if you're able to communicate well with everyone. Yep. Who, who was it that was driving the process? It's such a, it can be such a political issue and also support for that kind of position can come at many different levels of the organization. There might be someone just off to the side who they, yeah, you can hire somebody or it might be driven by someone high in the organization with the Rams. Who was it that was, that was really kind of championing, the fact that they needed to bring anybody in and and then maybe in particular you yeah so they sort of um they had someone before and she uh she left to do more of a business side on the at the falcons and um she was she was uh trained in the like sciences but not not so much like more so in math and, and laid a really good um groundwork in the organization i guess for the for the respect of it all. So when she left, they're kind of like, we want to replace her. Let's look for this skill set, but let's see if we can, we can maybe advance it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were, I think they they were pretty inclined to, to hire someone already just because they saw the value, which I thank her every day for that. Like, right. um, Right. So, so they, they had seen the value before and they, they were ready to hire a lot of these, like our, our uh, general manager, our analytics department, like our data and our infrastructure department. And then a lot of the the drive was from our sports science, who um, I was ah. actually hired, hired primarily to work work with them. So oh, they, wow. were, they were a big, big part of the interview process. So that's fantastic, Sarah, because sometimes those folks are quite isolated or maybe even defensive about their territory versus some, some other analyst. And... Um, we always we talk a lot on, about sports science. Yeah, in this show. it's, 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 it's I, I feel like it's an ever increasing topic it's of conversation. A, you know, we've seen it for five six years now, mm-hmm. Shane, but it only gets bigger all the time, and it's a big playing field. I mean, it, they, sports scientists, exercise science people should not be protective. It's big enough and important enough that it really needs to be kind of all all men on deck, all women on deck. Yeah. It's like everybody everybody can pitch in here. So, so Sarah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so Sarah, this is our brother. I wanted to ask you a question since I spent a lot of time working with the Eagles, probably in a similar role that you're in. Are are there statisticians throughout the organization now at the Rams, both on the business side and on the on field side, or is it like are you? Is it such a large endeavor now that there's just like a centralized statistics group, and you guys work for whoever there is? I'm just wondering organizationally, are there people that work? Do you actually work on like dynamic pricing problems? Do you work on uh, things having to do with media analytics with the marketing of the Rams, or are you pretty much just on the on field side? So I am. I'm just football side. Um, there's our business has some people and I know that they were expanding and I'm pretty sure they just hired another person too 
for the more of the media and the ticket sales and uh, and that that aspect were um, were separate buildings, so it's really hard to stay in touch, I guess, and figure out what they're what they're doing at this point, just because we're still we're still temporary in our in our facilities. Um, but we, we do we do meet up like once once a year, uh, especially at like attack conference and just kind of reconnect and, and work work with resources. But business business is separate right now. So I'm I'm the I'm the football entity and, and then business is this other. We're talking to Sarah Bailey. Sarah is a football statistician with the Los Angeles Rams. Before that she did some master's work at Simon Fraser in Canada and worked as an actuary um, after working some with the Chargers. Sarah, can you give us a sense of what your, um, what your, what kinds of projects you're working on? Now, you can't reveal, you know, RAM secrets. We're not asking for that. But just broadly, what does the work look like that you're doing in the building? Uh, yeah, so we, you say I touch like all three departments, which we separate into three, meaning coaching, personnel, and um, sports science. Mm-hmm. And, Right now, it's a, it's a it's a whole lot of uh, draft work, obviously, with the combine just finishing up and and summarizing um, those results. So we're kind of we're kind of in in a full full personnel stage, just looking at players and looking at different skills. And you know, what can you look at that that's different from what the scout sees? So how can you evaluate players? that's going to give them additional information that that the scouts either have and it goes it's confirm, confirmation or you know it's kind of like well yeah on tape he looks like this or our grades tell us he's explosive but he's actually was wasn't wasn't great in the combine or the senior bowl or whatever it is that you're looking at for your metric of of explosion um so sarah let's talk let's let's talk about this because we're uh, this draft season obviously so we'll be talking a lot for the next couple of months but it's such Mm -hmm. a rich topic how do we blend the analytics side, the quantitative side, with traditional scouting, because this yeah. is really the realm of traditional scouting. And and at what stage in the process does that happen? I mean, you could you could have organizations kind of doing sort of like almost like reports in parallel, and then you know whoever is making those drafting decisions has to synthesize at the end. Or you could have more of a back and forth kind of feedback between scouting and analytics, kind of throughout the process. And it could be a harmonious thing or it could be a conflict-ridden thing. And we see different sports are different levels. You know, walk into a baseball war room – and you know they're they're heavy. They don't, they many of them set the board quantitatively. And so I'm just kind of curious where things are and how you're seeing that dynamic in in your life. Well, so for us, I think I think it's a tool. You know, our scouts do a lot of things. College data is tough because it, you don't you don't have the same data for every division. You don't have um, as comprehensive for every school. The schedules are so biased. You get those. You know those right. D one playing those D two every year, and I'm like, well, that's that's bad data. Right. And um, so for for us, it's like it's the work the scouts do is, is invaluable, invaluable, and I'll say that many times because that's a data point too. So if and it's and it's unique because it's it's the only data point that we have that no other team has. Right. So scout data scout data is used in in my work and just evaluating it and like. Sometimes you just you can look you can look from the simple process of okay well what what variables are we looking at that maybe aren't as important in in a college player's success and do we need to keep tracking those so so it can come in at that point where you're looking at all right what are we going to cover for the scouts and what are they going to track and then it can come in in the draft point more so 
I would say, and I think it's more bigger wins with the later rounds, because if you're talking about an investment purpose and you're talking first to third rounds, like you're going to get a decent player at least first and second, third might be on the border, fourth might be on the border, but you know it's pretty obvious who's good and it mm-hmm. more comes up to what do you need and who's available. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get to the later rounds where things are, are less clear cut as to who is the better player, you can start doing tiebreaker situations. And I think that's when, when analytics comes in or uh, when you're looking at all these variables, like which, which one should we focus on and different uh, different perspectives like that. Yes, yeah, Sarah, this is Eric Bradley, and you actually sort of answered the question I was going to give, which was um, I the way we used analytics a lot with the Eagles was we didn't tell the scouts how to score someone because we don't know how to do that as statisticians, but what we told them was the following three or four variables seem highly predictive of performance at this position. Can you go ahead and you score as you're scoring these people, can you please make sure you focus on these aspects? Mm-hmm. Are you Are you seeing a similar thing? Yeah, so we will we will definitely um, do like tell them which which are which are more highly predictive and that last year came in as more of um, like the tiebreaker situation um, for us it's like and then scouting and I think on a lot of teams you know you you start tracking these data and you don't want to necessarily say something's not important just because maybe it's only two or three years old and you don't even have a full rookie contract on a guy and. You, I, I like we always are just like if you don't mind tracking it even though we haven't found anything then go ahead because you just you don't know when right. if, if you get a complete data set that it's going to it's going to be predictive and we'd rather have too much data than um than not enough mm-hmm. so we we do we will like say say a focus part for the for the most part um it's more of like what when you're looking at a guy retrospectively and everything's already done, you kind of want to stick with what they, with the criteria that they're given um, to, to scout and, and let them do that as consistent as possible. And then come in with the, Hey, this is important. Or that like from our perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, this is Eric Bradley. I want to ask you how important is it that you maybe to Cade's building on Cade's earlier question that you knew football. The reason I'm specifically asking that question is our producer, Matt Datch is putting our rundown this week that the Athletics' Ben Baldwin wrote an article that the winners of the NFL Data Bowl this year knew nothing about football. And when they say nothing, they mean nothing. <laughs> and so do you, how important is it to have you know, kind of knowledge of the game in your mind to be able to build the kind of statistical models you do? I, I think it's really important, like, um, especially in football, where there are a lot of nuances that either personnel or scouting wants to adjust for. It's like, well... What was uh, this type of defense, or um, was it actually like if you're talking about three, four defense, was it really, or was that was that third, was that fourth guy kind of pushing up, and it was more of a more of a four three, and like it's very you know you get the PFF stuff where it's strictly defined and the XY where it's hesitantly defined, but it, it's something that they want to know, I guess, and if they speak to you in that terminology, and you're like, well, I don't know what that means. This is just where the dots were, then. I don't think it's going to be received as well. Yeah. Um, so what, what, I just want to underscore what Sarah's saying. Sarah's saying it's one thing to be able to run the analysis, but it's an entirely another thing to communicate and persuade based on the insights of that analysis. And these the guys covered in the Wall Street Journal article, they, they only had to, you know, it was a numeric thing. It, it was, was a prediction was no... contest and, no. and, and, and a particular format, a, co- a Kaggle contest. And the people, the guys who won it are Kaggle 
you know, veterans. I mean, this is what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, the structure of it made it very hard for kind of subject matter people to even do well. Our students weren't able to even submit because it, was, it required too much CS knowledge. That, um, so, Sarah, let's, let's, let's just get you. We only have about a minute left with you. Mm-hmm. What are you most excited about in football analytics right now? As you look around, you have a unique vantage point on what's going on in the field, not just with the Rams, but around the league. What are you most excited about in the field right now? Uh, yeah, I think just just sort of the growth of it all and how it's becoming more of a forefront, and it's 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 really something that just it's not going to stop growing just because of you know the way it's, it's structured. There's different um, there's different categories of football analytics. There's different departments. There's there's the data the the X Y data, of course, is something that everyone's excited about, and and, and people are still just tapping in like, what can we do with it that mm-hmm. that uh, that's that's useful like yes you see the public data and it's really good work but it's like some some things you just gotta take a step back and be like how can we help this user with our team and so Mm -hmm. it's it's all it's all the the convincing process still and and it's exciting because people people buy in at different levels and you can see that increasing pretty exponentially in the last year 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 or two and so i'm just excited to see what the growth is i where it's going to go, I think, is where everyone's talking about, like, just the same sort of stuff, but how fast it grows, that's, that's the thing that I'm more excited for. Yep, and we, we, we concur with all of that, and it's exciting to talk to someone who's on the front lines there. Sarah, thanks for being with us this morning. We hope to talk to you again down the road. Awesome, thank you. Sarah Bailey, football statistician with the Los Angeles Rams, and that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Whole crew in here hosting today on the sixth anniversary show. Adi Weiner's over there. Shane Jensen is over there. Eric Bradle's over there. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here too. Give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on email businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Or catch us on Twitter at wmoneyball. Is our handle up there at wmoneyball? Just off the phone with Sarah Bailey, statistician out there with the Rams. You know the field is growing. Michael Lopez wrote a piece, and then Seth Seth followed up on uh, the number of analysts in the NFL and. The number of women analysts and female analysts in the NFL has grown from two or three to seven over um, you know, just the last year. Mm-hmm. And everybody's kind of getting in the game. The XY data, as Sarah talked about, is, is a big part of that. But just you know, PFF stuff, I think the, the increasing co- communication in the media, everybody's kind of getting in the game. It was fun to talk to someone in the building. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's, it's an exciting time, I think, to get involved in analytics because it's like, you know, uh, in a lot of different industries, but football specifically, like our kind of ability to collect data has vastly outstripped our ability to, or at least the number of people devoted to collecting data is, is, is much larger than the number of people that we've kind of devoted or to the enterprise of analyzing it. So it's kind of a wide open, it's like a Wild West kind of feel to it, I think, right now. You know, it's more Wild Westy than the most established of the analytics uh, sports, and that is baseball. Uh, and baseball, of course, you know, they've moved a lot lately. Uh, with more of the player development and technology, 
but um, they were kind of there first. And so it's always interesting to talk to folks who know a little bit more about that. In this half hour, delighted to have Jeff Passon join us. Jeff is a senior MLB insider at ESPN, one of the most followed and most respected writers in baseball. He is also the author of the book, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. You can follow Jeff on Twitter. His handle is at Jeff Passon. Jeff, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Good to be with you guys, and great to hear that the NFL is finally showing up 20 years late to the party. <laughs> We've been saying that exactly, Jeff. Good snark. That's right on right on point for this show. Um, where are you calling in from, Jeff? I'm in uh, Kansas City right now, home of uh, the NFL champions, and uh, yeah. some pretty bad baseball these days. You know, you could jump, you could you could change, you could jump over the fence, you could do a little football story while you're there, see what it's like. I have zero interest in doing that. Great <laughs> answer, absolutely great answer. It's probably not the way right to, way season to, way to tell Cade what, what's up. Yeah. <laughs> Cade is trying to make everyone football fans. He succeeded partially with me. <laughs> so, so Jeff, listen. We know we only got you for half a segment this time, so we want to jump straight into some things. You, we, we follow you, we read you, we we follow baseball, but the stuff around the Astros, of course. I mean, you were front and center on that stuff. You were kind of an early warning sign in some ways on what was going on down there. On this side of things, and we're not even clear of it yet, but what is your perspective right now on what went down in Houston, what's going on across the league? What do you take from the from the cheating scandal at this point? I mean, I think when it's all said and done and we look back on what the Astros did, uh, it's very easy to view it through the lens of this was a team that was so deeply rooted in and based around analytics that – uh, the the uh, the unhuman element, so to speak, is what wound up driving this. But I, I think that's a false narrative, honestly. I think that uh, when it's all said and done, this is going to be uh, a, a sporting crime of hubris and of arrogance and of all the principles that the Astros preached during the time that Jeff Luna was there. And uh, that got reinforced by the owner, Jim Crane. And, and ultimately, uh, they flew too close to the sun. I mean, this is as Icarus a story as you will find because uh, a great baseball team, and I think the Houston Astros, regardless of whether they uh, or how much they cheated, were and still are capable of being a great baseball team. Regardless of that, uh, they chose ultimately to take a, a path that is going to have them uh, in ignominy, ignominy for the rest of their lives. And, and it's, it's an unfortunate story, just like uh, in many cases the steroid users are unfortunate stories. The fact that Barry Bonds, such a transcendent, wonderful baseball player to watch, is shrouded in steroid speculation uh, for the remainder of his career, and Alex Rodriguez and so many others, uh, takes away from the greatness that they had. And it saddens me to see the Houston Astros' greatness, which I do think was real, taken away. So you are you and many others have put the Astros' cheating can- scandal on the same plane as steroids. Some have actually tried to liken it to gambling on baseball with Pete Rose. I don't quite see it, um, simply because... Stein's ceiling has been part of baseball since time immemorial, and there are countermeasures one can take to stop it. If you really thought they were stealing your signs, and many teams knew that they were by 19, why not change them up constantly? Have your countermeasures. I mean, this is something that I think is, you can't stop steroids. If, so, if your opponent is using steroids, there's nothing you can do. But when they're, you, when they're trying to steal your signs, you, you hide your signs. What, what, am I totally off the mark here? 
I think you're definitely off the mark when you're trying to compare what the Astros were doing to sign stealing in the past. What, what the Astros were doing was, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a juiced-up version of the sign stealing that has been around baseball forever. It was relaying in real time from the dugout, which, look, if you can pick a sign at second base and, and somehow get it to the hitter, then uh, I – you know, maybe maybe I'm too ensconced in the baseball world to uh, to see that there's no difference between the two. But it I would say no difference. Like but, but it's yeah, I mean, it, if it, you're it, if like Kershaw had 51 pitches, uh, we we talked about this. We maybe one swing and miss in the in the World Series. Did he not realize that maybe they were potentially he was either tipping his pitches or the signs were being stolen, and that maybe they should yeah, do something. I will, I will. I will say this: Clayton Kershaw's slider was not good that day. Uh-huh. And his curveball was not good that day. There were a lot of cookies in there. So whether mm-hmm. it was because of the Astros doing something, or maybe just because Kershaw's pitches weren't all that great, if you go back and look at the video from that day, uh, the sw- I don't think the swings and misses came necessarily because the Astros were doing something. But even even if they were. Um, you know, switching up signs is is not something that uh, that I think is an, is is as easy a thing to do as mm-hmm. we want to sit here and say. There are consequences to that as well. Um, yeah, co- you know, cognitive lo- cognitive load, basically. I mean, you're basically they've got a lot well, to manage well, mentally already. There's that. Yeah, there's that. But beyond that, there's the number of pass balls because. Uh, catchers and and pitchers get crossed up. Oh yeah, right. Good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there there are the mound visits that that end up uh, slowing down the pace of the game and and potentially getting a a pitcher out of his rhythm. I mean, yes, you can change up signs, but yes, you have to address the consequences of that. That tend to be negative consequences as well. Right, right. Jeff, let's let's hear a little bit from you on where. You lay the blame, and this isn't a court of law. We're not going to say this is objective truth, but you do have a lot of perspective on this. And I feel a little bit like a family member grieving the loss of someone, and you kind of have to process it. You're kind of still making sense of it. And that's, you know, we lauded the Astros for years um, because we're an analytics community, and Jeff Luno is a Penn grad, and we've had we've interviewed Jeff on the show, and, and so there's a lot to mourn here, and we're still making sense of it to some sense. What's your perspective on where the blame lies? And I'm sure there's lots to go around, but what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of different approaches you can take here. Uh, some of it is institutional in this idea of chasing championships at at all costs, and I think that's something that is probably more universal in the sport than even the people in other front offices care to recognize. Mm-hmm. But I also think it lays the foundation for some of the behavior that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. The players are to blame here. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who did this. They're the ones who were pushing for it. And it was in some cases in concert with the coaching staff. And uh, you had your, uh, you know, the code breaker uh, algorithm that, helped out um it really if we're talking about uh, you know uh, this this feeling like a family it really was a family effort from top to bottom yeah, right. i think everyone here and and it goes all the way up to the owner jim crane well so say more about that right. you mentioned crane earlier and you know yeah, everybody's everybody's you go up the food chain everyone's trying to say no i was out of the loop and most people now are like yeah luna wasn't out of the loop are you saying crane wasn't out of the loop either uh, look i don't know if jim crane knew what was going on or didn't 
Uh, if he did not know what was going on, that makes him a bad CEO. If he did know what was going on, then clearly he's lying. Either way, he doesn't come out looking particularly good. Because if you are running an organization, you have to know what is going on at the boots-on-the-ground level. You, I, I just think that is an imperative if you're going to be as hands-on an owner as Jim Crane was. This wasn't a guy who's in a different city letting his investment uh, you know, gain zeros on the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a guy who was at every game. Who, who is down on the field, who is talking with people, who is involved, who is helping run baseball operations right now. Hmm. The notion that he did not know what was going on strains credulity. So, Jeff, this is Eric Brad, though. There's nothing I care more about in any sport, but especially baseball, than the Hall of Fame. As the, any of our listeners for the last six years on Wharton Moneyball know, do you think this will have an impact, like when Jose Altuve... Right now, he appears to be heading towards a Hall of Fame career. Do you expect this to have some impact in a similar way that my colleague Adi had mentioned steroid use? Do you expect this to have a long-lasting impact on those years and how people, how sports writers view these players? I'm glad you care so much because you are making up for my lack of care on the subject. <laughs> it's a nice little balance we've got going on here. Uh, I, I absolutely think it's going to have an effect. And... I'm genuinely curious to see what that is, because when it comes down to it, what we must remember is that for every four sports writers, only one of them needs to disagree or have some sort of moral anger about this to prevent someone like Jose Altuve from being in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Before this, Jose Altuve was a 95 percent guy. After this, I'd be surprised if Jose Altuve is a 75 percent guy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other than the Hall of Fame, Jeff, what do you see the long-term consequences, or even the medium-term consequences of this scandal being? Um, I think we're going to see see more. You know, it, it, it's almost like this is going to turn into uh, a a running thread throughout the baseball season. I don't know if you guys saw Anthony Rizzo uh, on ESPN a couple days ago. We had this great all-access game. Rizzo was mic'd up all game. Uh, you know, he was talking in the middle of an at bat about uh, how he didn't know it was coming, and uh, and he said, "Someone bang for me," and <laughs> it was like this snarky little wonderful joke inserted in the middle of a broadcast of a baseball game on ESPN yeah. by a guy who's been an all star multiple times and and may himself uh, be you know on a Hall of Fame track, mm-hmm. and and for that. For that to be in that moment, I thought was indicative of how baseball players have not forgotten. Mm-hmm. And as long as players have not forgotten, guys, nobody else is going to forget because they will keep that going. The media will keep it going. And this is going to be a story uh, that continues not just this year, but for years to come because the fallout and the consequences. I think we're just starting to see the beginning of. Jeff, uh, this is Eric Bradlow again. Do you think analytics can play a role in continuing the story in some sense? How many? How long is it going to take before someone does an analytical study that says, wow, let's compare 2020 Altuve or Bregman or Correa to their 2018 numbers? Do you think in some ways, while analytics can help lots of things, in this case it may actually exacerbate the storytelling? I think that it's going to be part of it, and I urge everybody to wait for a representative sample size. But I know there are uh, there are some numbers out there that tend to stabilize 
pretty early in the season, and I can guarantee that my friends over at Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus and Sam Miller and Brad Doolittle at ESPN.com are going to be doing those very types of stories that hopefully elucidate things and give us uh, a greater knowledge of this great game. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, Jeff, we appreciate your contribution to our knowledge of the game. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing. Boy, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Jeff Passan, Senior MLB Insider at ESPN. He's also the author of the book, The Arm, Inside the Billion-Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. I guess that's not about NFL quarterbacks, after all. That's about us starting pitchers. All I right, so. fair enough. And you can follow Jeff. You can follow Jeff at uh, at on Twitter, at Jeff Passan, at Jeff Passan. Guys, thoughts on that? So, um, interesting. I'm, I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the, the, he's strong, strong, strong perspective on that. Curious your reactions to Jeff's take on the situation. Well, it's not surprising. I think he's uh, he has uh, he's expressing a, a common sentiment. Um, there's a tremendous amount of anger um, that that the players did this and they got away with it. Um, as I said, I I tend to be. I mean, I agree that this is a this is a, a bad thing and that they shouldn't have done it. But but I t- tend to take a, a longer view, a more perspective view on this. And and among the horrible things that have happened in in sports history, this is. I don't think this is the worst. Um, I actually think at some level this is interesting because everyone's excited about it and and, and angry about it and actually maybe helping baseball. Is that a, is that a, a bad well, hot take? I, I mean, I I think to the extent that this is sort of well, if if you certainly take it that there's no such thing as it's bad, bad attention. Kind yeah. of perspective, yeah. then yeah. Base, you, you know this. This is the time. I, I, I would. I'm going to be interested to see how this evolves throughout the season as well, because although it is, in, you know, it, it's creating a, a, a bulk of the news and in kind of the spring training kind of it, uh, yeah, we're part all talking of the season, baseball. but. You know, we we struggle most seasons to create any kind of like news at this point, right? Yes. I mean, like yeah. all this is re- is all this doing is replacing all oh, this guy's in the best shape of his life kind of stories that we'd be normally kind of wading through right now. You know, we're you know, there's a lot of media focused on baseball right now, and they got to create. Well, there's a lot of preseason injuries already. Stories, <laughs> so, and this is easy to kind of like yeah. perpetuate, and like so, you know. Uh, if I'm saying that it's mostly just the media kind of creating this, you know, for lack of a better story, then that probably will fade as, you know, the the season progresses and, you know, kind of real kind of baseball takes over. But I could be wrong about that. I can that. only say from my perspective why it, c- it will continue to bother me for a significant amount of time. Um, I go back to, I think in baseball, you know, obviously as a Yankee fan, we haven't gotten past the Astros. Yeah. I think there's, you know... No, I mean, can, Yankees can it, and Dodgers no, no, fans but, are going to feel very also, strongly about this, also, and I totally can see yeah, that. Yeah, but I also think about effect size. Like, for example, even if you didn't sign steal on every pitch, imagine I told you, and Adi talks about this all the time, imagine in four or five high-leverage situations in a series, yeah. all of a sudden your batters know what pitch is coming. That could absolutely, you know, you talk about the randomness in baseball. If I shocked you and told you that the the sign stealing raised the probability of the Astros winning to fifty three to forty seven, would that would that be so unheard of? I don't think it's unheard of. There uh-huh. could be a two or three percent. All right, so now you start to say. What other things in baseball give you an effect size of that big? And it's hard to find them. Well, so to it's me, not actually. I mean, I mean, we talk about this as like, oh my goodness, this affected the fairness of the game. There's no salary cap. I mean, I'll tell you what else affects a team winning having like a three hundred million dollar payroll versus a fifty million dollar <laughs> payroll. There's no fairness in baseball anyway. 
And now we're talking about these little effect sizes. And I know what you're, I mean, I'm, I'm going to actually concede your point that conditional on the two teams facing each other on the playing surface, this affects the fairness of that particular enterprise. But there, there are greater macro issues that incredibly affect the fairness, quote unquote, of baseball that, you know, I, I, I just, I, I guess I don't see the sign stealing as like, you know, a huge determinant of, of kind of outcome in baseball relative to the giant elephant in the room that some teams have way better players than other teams. I was conditioning on the, yeah, they've no, actually I, faced each other, but no, you're right. But, but that is a very small effect relative to the very large effect of some teams are able to pay their players a lot and get the good players and other teams are not. So, like the Kansas City Royals or the Oakland Athletics face a very different kind of fairness thing great when they when they play baseball. And that's know. why I still love baseball. Last time yeah. I checked, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays won how many games last year? A whole bunch. It was over ninety-five, yep. I think. Yeah. And they have a payroll that might be yeah. less than Giancarlo yeah, right. Stanton that's is right. making himself do, from the Yankees. Do, is there like an annual award for wins per dollar spent? There should be. There, there, should, should, be. Be. there should be. We should give that out. So the. I appreciate It'll be a budget ceremony, but yeah. <laughs> I appreciate very efficient. It'll be a, a virtual yeah. trophy. Uh, I appreciate Bean, uh, Billy Bean wins it, by the way, just in case you want to know. Still. Yes. That's amazing. Yep. I mean, all these years, and he's still yep. doing that. Um, it helps to have a small denominator, right? It and does. It, yeah. And he's got just ridiculously low payroll out there in Oakland. So Jeff started out by saying, look, we think there's this false narrative out there that connects it too tightly to analytics. And I really appreciated his leading with that because his first article out of Houston, and it was more about the the untoward comments of the executive who eventually got fired. His first com- his first article coming out of that did tie the Astros' behavior and hubris to analytics, mm-hmm. and and he's backed off of that story now, which I think is helpful. But I loved his first comment, which, the first comment after that, which was, "There's an institutional thing here, and that is anything goes in pursuit of a championship." And he says, I don't think that's unique. I don't think it's unique to the Astros. He could have said, I don't think that's unique to sports. And I think it raises an interesting question. It's like, how often does that override yeah. any ethical or moral, yeah, no, moral and consideration? I think, it is, I think the kind of connecting point with the analytics thing is I think the Astros kind of bought into that. They, they just thought they were smarter than everyone else. And they could kind of do whatever they wanted, including this, this cheating. Okay, hold thing. on a second. What he said was, if this was led by the players and even in the most analytical in uh, community team the analytics doesn't come from the players that's that's not where it starts so at some point this drive to win at all costs that comes from the this, players this is so, I, this was his emphasis and i i concur with you Audie. i think that's the more interesting take and i think and and i think one of the things that you see and i think the same thing that makes you championships also is the same things that leads you to be more likely to cross over boundaries yeah, right. it's this mm-hmm. you gotta win it's a drive mm-hmm. that, that that certain communities uh, uh can emphasize with each other and it, it causes things to cross i mean we've talked about this a little off the air but i have to say one of my Responses to this indignation that you see by so many people, which is, well, you know what? I have to say, I think you're, if you were in the same situation, I'm hard pressed to believe you might not have done some of the same things. Well, ask ask what Hinch's response was. I, I haven't studied this thing in detail, but I remember Hinch talking. There's some story about Hinch going in there and like smashing the screen with a bat or something. He was trying to get the guys to stop. At least he tried on an occasion. To mm-hmm. get the guy, this is the manager of the club, right? And he he doesn't like it. He sees it, doesn't like it, and 
and either can't do anything about it or doesn't quite try enough because he's got all these other things to balance. He's got to run this team of guys, and these aren't kids. It's one thing if they're high school kids. It's even one thing if they're college kids. These are grown men. These are guys making more money than him. He's got to balance all these things. It's a. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying it's really interesting and really hard. Yeah. So I thought Shane's point earlier actually would make it so that you know it's hard. You know, it's easy to say sitting here I wouldn't have done this, but actually to me, no, it's hard to say that. But I'm saying to me, analytics makes it even less likely. Let me just say why. I always this is the way I live life. People maybe do it formally or informally, is cost-benefit analysis. Let's say you believe that sign-stealing is not this massive, huge effect. Maybe it's 1%, 2%. Then I don't know about you. I would be sitting there as a player saying, okay, if I do this, we're going to gain an edge. That's great. But if the edge is so small that the downside risk is so large, to me, analytics actually can be a solution to problems yeah. like yeah, these. No, like another right. Imagine right. having, just like, you know, we talked, you know, you, we know that players are talked about to, at the beginning of the season about, you know, don't ruin your finances, do this, do that. Even just some basic analytics might have told the league, you know what, this isn't going to change the outcomes of the games and the way you're thinking. Yeah. Therefore, this type of maybe analytics can be a solution to no, the problem. No, I, I do. But I, I do think that you know probably athletes when they're so focused on winning are probably not going to properly balance downside risk, even if you kind of present them with effect sizes. But I, I agree. I mean, you know, if you don't give them effect sizes, they certainly can't do that kind of calculation for themselves. So mm-hmm. I agree. It, it would be it's something mm-hmm. that analytics could be helpful with. Good. So one of the one of the pieces in the scandal that has yet to be made public was who broke the code during the game and how did that get communicated to the player so the 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 story behind it is the the replay room is where the the feeds are and that's in every stadium home and away the your clubhouse has the video feed and has and it's where they look at the replays and may decide whether or not to to challenge a play and that's and what the astros had the, the doors open and people were coming in and out but somebody had to be stealing the sign. I thought we knew this. I thought this was this intern who built this code breaker. Yeah, but program. you know what? But that's that. He just proved that anybody can do this because you just look. At, he collected the data from historical data, watched it, wrote it down, and showed that you can easily break signs. That's not illegal. That's not and 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 the question is, you, does that apply on the given, any given morning of the game? I'm sure they change up their signs. I mean, you don't just you, you probably have a set of them and you use them. So somebody during the game yeah. has to break the code. Yeah, can I ask or, a question? Or, or, is there, that has to be an analyst. Is there anything that would stop a player from doing? The, I've always wondered this about signs. Suppose I decided I'm at bat. I've got someone's broken the code before the game. They're allowed to do that. They can watch from wait. I'm a batter. I walk three feet away from the batter's box and stare at what the catcher's signs is flashing to the pitcher. You'd be hit on the next pitch. Okay, so that wouldn't be okay, right, Adi? What do you mean? I'm sorry. What what are you doing? You've got to be in the batter's box. You can't see. No, no, no. no. The pitch hasn't come yet. They're flashing signs. Why don't I just go peek around at the uh, catcher and there, see what the catcher's no, no, doing? No, 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 you can't see that. You, you, you can't. You, you can see that. Guy, guys, you guys, can see guys that. Are, some guys are known for looking. Or trying to sneak a yeah, peek. So is guys that okay with you? Absolutely. Not only okay, it's patent, absolutely Yeah, you'll legal. get thrown at. You'll get thrown You're at. You're absolutely so. allowed to do that. So that wouldn't be in your mind any form no, of cheating whatsoever. No, sign stealing is not. See, the way I describe this is it's any technology, anything that was available in 1920 is you can use to try to steal a sign. If it's not... and. And up until the game starts, it's 2020. But once the game starts, it's 1920. That's the rule. That's how you interpret it. And if you can do it on your own, 
You know, it's your problem. The issue is, is that how does it get stolen? There's somebody analytically yeah, somebody, inclined yeah, just, it just, has to have been That just indicts in the whole organization. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Jeff wants to go all the way up to Crane. Fine. I, I don't, I, you know, I, th- I don't think of owners as being that active, but some owners are active. And if this guy was that active, then sure. All right, let's indict him. But if you've indicted Crane and you've indicted Altuve and you picked up some interns along the way, you got everybody. So, yeah, your point is somebody is up there. Somebody's up there doing that. Before we end this segment, we talked to Pass and Pass and covers baseball more generally. <clears throat> it's that time of year, guys. Let's give me something positive on baseball, and hopefully, it, well, okay, y'all want to go Yankees, go Yankees. But give me something that you're excited about about this season that has nothing to do with science. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to my Yankees uh, colleagues here because I'm sure that they are more ex- more optimistic about the upcoming season than I am. Well, I wasn't so happy about all the injuries the Yankees wow. have faced already this season. With shoulder Judge yeah. Stanton, Wasn't this what happened last year? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I wonder, yeah. I mean, maybe the bigger point is, do these athletic behemoths with muscles on top of muscles are more likely to have injuries? Well, because these guys are the prototypical um, so football I, player at, I playing I just baseball. heard an article about that this morning coming into our show. So there's a contract that's about to be signed. It was Christian Yelich. I don't know if you heard about this. He's going to sign a seven-year, I think, extension. He's already got two years still mm-hmm. remaining on his yeah. contract for what's considered a very cap-friendly to him and his team, the Brewers, not a big market team, $215 million. So, uh, just a real quick check. Is Yelich widely considered the second-best player, position player in baseball? Mm. He's in the top five He's for in sure the top five. And, and competing yeah, for I, I, top two, without yeah, okay. a doubt. Okay. And yeah. the only reason I was bringing it up is... The exact point they brought up, Adi, which was your point this morning, is the reason why the Brewers are willing to invest in Yelich is because, and they talked to somebody, I was listening to an interview with someone from the Brewers, his body type they do not believe is the kind that will break down, mm-hmm. like Judge or Stanton. Yep. It's exactly why they said the guy's wiry, kids, no, not, yep. he's not Ted Williams, but they reminded mm-hmm. him of a body type yeah. of a wiry guy who's not like 255. Joe D, he's like a Joe DiMaggio type. Yeah, so that's what yeah. people, that's exactly the so, point they so, brought so, up this so morning. Now, and we so, know this because he was on the swimsuit edition of Sports <laughs> Illustrated without any clothes. <laughs> well, well the, you knew this. I just learned this. <laughs> See, I told you I learned stuff on the show, Shane. Yeah, no, I learned. I just learned that. Just last That's... week, we were talking about compelling narratives, compelling yeah. narratives, and in fact, it was a physiological-based narrative on hand size at the combine. Yeah. To what extent is this legit? Yeah, no, I was going to like. Or is, is this there... just a good narrative? Yeah. Like I mean, so Mike, I mean, Mike Trout, Mike Trout is de- does not have a Ted Williams body. We have people, a lot of sports science involved now no. in baseball. Is there actually kind of a, 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 a you know, is there like a lot of evidence towards this, or is this just kind of a conjecture? Well, you know, it's funny because this is the classic thing where our knowing our hypothesis will affect how we collect data. Because yeah. if I had to say, if I told someone blinded, how would in what category would you put Mike Trout? Well, I have to say he's not an overmuscled guy. He's a big guy, but he's not an overmuscled guy. He's known for his speed as well as his power. He doesn't hit uh, the ball 120 miles per hour off the bat like like Stanton and Judge do. And I don't know how many baseball players. It's fairly rare to see a guy in that in those in that I, what I called before football players who really are you know playing but baseball. I just want to understand your question. So I'm going to go back to Kate's question. Is there anything that There's stops no us? Well, why not? It like could why be couldn't data, we? But, I mean, wouldn't this be a fairly straightforward analysis to do totally. where you could take you yep. know, I'll make it up yep. so, I have a hundred body measurements which are easy to compare you capture them by AI today so you could construct that database very easily matter of fact you don't even have to get the data from the teams then you want some kind of cluster analysis to identify the football types mm-hmm. yeah. right and then you got injury data 
Yep. This yeah. seems real. You know what? These data exist somewhere. People have done. Come people on. Have, no, not even the data. The analysis exists. Somewhere. I wonder so, whether with some this. of the teams have actually done some of this yeah, work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know yeah. that behind I hope the so. the behind the scenes analyst work that they often have interns do, and put they, it has to, a lot to do with injuries. This is a well, well, my God, if you've got twenty five or thirty five guys, and some teams do. I mean, the, the top the top investing teams have analytics staff in the dozens. If you've got that many, you ought to have someone working yep. on uh, exercise science kind of but stuff But I'm like just that. thinking that the, the, these, these body types are actually very rare, which leaves you with a sample size con- concern. I mean, there aren't many. I mean, I remember when Stanton, a, when Mike Stanton came up, now he's John Carlos. There's a lot of guys. You've got minor looking, leagues. you got yeah, a lot of guys. Right. Well, I'm and a make, lot of years. But this is why you've told me, I mean, you, we all tell people this, but this is why I'm going to build a mathematical model, because I'm not going to assume these discrete types necessarily. I'm going to have continuous measurements. Yeah. I'm going to make some assumptions. You know, something like David Ortiz bridging the gap between the wiry guys and the football guys. <laughs> there we go. But I'm saying that's why you have a model. You Ortiz don't have to, can bridge yes, some gaps. You don't need to just yeah. discretize things. Yeah. You could build things that are continuous. Yeah. All right, fellas. Yeah. That's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. To Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to t- Been doing that. Been here every Wednesday morning. Pro- I don't know. Let's be realistic. Four-fifths of the Wednesday mornings, at least. Yeah. No, no. No, no. We actually much more. more than that. Any one of us is here about three-quarters of the time, but we do this show at least 48 weeks a year. Yeah. 50, so I would we're, guess. We're 50 shows last year. 50 shows last year. So we're pushing 300 shows. And that's because you Woo-hoo. only remember, as you remember, Christmas and New Year's fell exactly on, on Wednesday. On Wednesday. That's why we lost two. I think we sometimes have done 51. Wow. wow. All right. All right. What, self- what an amazing amount of content, guys, that we're <laughs> yeah. producing. <laughs> it's good for us, anyway. Um, fellas, in this last half hour, we're going to be open lines. You guys, listeners, can jump in and join us. 1-844-WHARTON. Good time to do so. 1-844-WHARTON. one 844 Nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email us at businessradio at siriusxm dot com or hit us up on Twitter. We'll take your questions on Twitter real time at W Moneyball. I, I want to do kind of an unorthodox set of topics here in the last half hour. We've got a few other issues floating around. Perhaps the, the most orthodox is the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. So this is the big industry conference. It's in Boston every year this time. They've been doing this maybe 12 years, I want to say, and it's it grew it grew immediately to this massive thing. It's more than 3,000 people. All the whole the whole community is there. A lot of you know casual interest is there as well, but teams are there. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We try to make it up there. Um, and one of the things they have is a research track. And over time, this research track has become quite sophisticated. Some very solid papers get submitted there. Influential work happens there. Some of the more serious people at the conference go to see that to see that research. And they, they name some finalists and they present on stage, but they also have a great poster session. And you see a wide range of things. And it's not just football and baseball. It's it's everything. It's extraordinary. And you see advances in technology. So one of the papers this year, for example, is on 
It's a form of computer vision, which is motion tracking with cameras, but it's done with video, just video, you know, TV production, basically. You got your mm -hmm. Sunday night and, you know, Saturday night hockey telecast, and we're going to pull all the XY coordinates off of my TV screen. If they can pull this off, then it's going to, you know, democratize and greatly expand the accessibility. If they can do it accurately, data. yes. If they can, so they're not, they can't do it quite accurately yet, yep. but they've got a proof of concept. There's a paper at MIT that's basically proof of concept. We can get signal out of these data via our TV screens and say part of the excitement is not necessarily what it does today, but what it suggests is going to happen, you know, next year or the year after that. Adi, I know you've seen some papers yeah, too. Yeah, so usually the, the rep reputation of Sloan was that the, papers are often proprietary data-based, which meant that it was not the academic community and it wasn't testable or verifiable outside, and it was just, here's what we can do, show off. Um, in fact, it, be, oh, it almost became a running joke um, that this is, well, ha -ha, it was, you it can't Certainly it was it, right. not replicatable yeah, by no the replic academic and community. And that's in the context of an academic, broader academic community that increasingly emphasizes replicability. So you Absolutely. need to share data, need to have transparent data. And which is which is becoming, as you said, increasingly almost a, almost a, a necessary yeah. requirement for publication in an applied area. And so Sloan always had that reputation. In fact, historically, and, and we can testify to this, most sports analytics came out of academia. And so it's only been in the last five years that, that sports uh, uh, analytics has been led by the the professionals, if you will, the teams, the corporations, the the, the technology companies on the side. I, the, by I, the way, there's a third community, which is the media and analysts and journalists. That's mm -hmm. right, and and they are starting to produce stuff. So, for example, one of the papers is Eric Eager, and Eric has a paper that a finalist. This is our friend uh, at PFF at PFF uh, on PFF's uh, football war, and he's a yeah. finalist. In, and uh, I was, you know, I haven't looked at the at the full papers yet. There's a paper on. Pulling the starting pitcher. This is something that we always wondered about in, in baseball. We always felt that managers had this sort of haphazard way of yanking their starter. And as a, and they and uh, and these are actually actual, actual academics who have who have tried to build uh, economists who have really tried to b understand when what's the right time to pull the starting pitcher. Very hard to do because we miss. I mean, this is a word we've thrown around before. The counterfactual. Yeah. We don't get to leave the starting pitcher in and see what he would have done in an alternative universe. So it's almost. We have a few. Yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> right. Like when Pedro got left in. No, hold right. on. I would think you would have a lot because they're, they're not doing anything close to what these guys would consider to be optimal. So you've got lots of, you know, so, false uh, negatives, yeah. essentially. So it's I, just hard to identify, you know, like the set of things like like. I, I guess there's a, there's a lot of large denominator yeah. of t of times pitchers were kind of left in the game, but what is kind of the comparable subset of those that you'd want to kind of establish as your counterfactual to taking a pitcher out? Right, and what's become it, it's it's, yeah. it's it's a little bit more complex to kind of define. Relievers sort are better. Of like, you know. So the trick the trick is we know this to, today's relieving cores are better than a tiring starter. So the point of the paper, and I'm not going to say that this is right because this is a hard problem and and they built regression models for modeling a binary variable and i always find those you know you, you building regression models for a zero one outcome is a, sometimes a, a very smart thing when you're doing prediction I'm, I'm okay with it but if you're trying to interpret coefficients and there's a lot of that uh, i tend to be very suspicious of those kinds of models but their point was interesting their concluding point was yes you should pull the starting pitcher it's a smart thing to do but it appears at least the result that a randomized, they're, they're, randomized strategies are about as good as the strategy they're using today, which is, that's a, somewhat of a stunner, which is, in other words, if you just pull them in around the sixth inning, just yank them, don't yeah. make any, any reference to what's happened before, you probably end up with the same you don't, result. I just want to make sure I understand the result. You don't mean 
if the manager or whoever decides it's a 50-50 situation, just flip a coin and decide what to do. You just mean a a a priori that's determined before the start of the game (laughs) that I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's That's surprising. Exactly, but, well, but then of course a, you have to wonder. True, that's a beautifully strong result. Yeah, anytime you can say random, is, you're doing no better than random, and you you can say that definitively. Yeah. It, they're that's, not saying it definitively, and they and you have to recognize this is not experimental, and it doesn't try to do what we might call in statistics causal inference, which is really trying to do matching and. Well, that's what I just analysis. said. You're not even yeah. going to match. They're, they're not even doing anything of that. They're trying to do you know traditional regression based adjustments, um, which which can be very good, but I don't want. To, to diss on them, but this is a very hard problem. Yeah. So before I declare this thing solved, um, we have to recognize this is a first attempt at doing something of this nature. It's great. Really, really interesting. This is exactly the kind of thing that you, you go to the MIT conference for, and they're doing a service. I mean, now, you don't have to go to the conference to get this. You can access the papers online. You can. They do a great job of posting the videos mm-hmm. of the, not posting, they show some of this stuff real time. So lots of, uh, lots can, of fun at MIT. This conference run, is running this week, by the way, so it begins Assuming that the coronavirus doesn't shut things down, it runs on Friday and Saturday. I'm just going to ask you guys a question. Um, what would be considered a successful paper at the MIT Sloan? Here's what I'm, why I'm asking it. You can imagine one success would be it gets published in a top academic journal. Another one you could imagine is a paper that gets actually used by teams. Another one you could imagine is that it gets a lot of popular press. Can you guys give me a sense of who is the tar- – I have to put on my marketing hat every once in a while. Who's the target audience for the papers there? Is it to impress the community so that it gets adopted by teams? Is it? I'm just trying to understand what the goal of most of the papers are. Is it purely knowledge <clears throat> creation, or do some people want to get them published? I'm just trying to understand it's the a mix. Great, it's a great question. I think there's a, there's a, there, all these motivations are there in different degrees. But what I think is true is that this is increasingly seen as a legitimate outlet for it's a validating outlet yeah. for your research. So if you if you get something in there and it gets put into the finals, then it's a it's a badge of honor. And it also provides a platform where everybody sees it. We're talking I mean, Audi sees it. He's an academic, but also the, the whole professional community is there and is going to see it. Do you guys have a sense that um, any teams out there right now forget the sport? value academic publications. I mean, that's why you guys would know what changed in the tech industry. Like, for example, Google has research <laughs> labs, Facebook has labs, etc., where part of those people's jobs and performance, KPIs, if you like, are academic publication. Are there sports teams now that we're seeing that? Well, so you're I, saying value in terms of they would, they would be happy if their analyst published, or are you saying they value and that they want to consume it? That they would be happy if their analysts. I think well, the answer yeah. to that is almost certainly no yeah. because of the proprietary nature of it. In fact, mostly they want they want they'd be happy if they just consumed everything and nobody ever found out. What oh they yeah, did. I guess I was interpreting your question a little bit differently. That like you know if if, if a team was looking for uh, an like uh, kind of like looking for an analyst and they wanted to kind of draw from the, from the yeah. academic uh, sample, get somebody from the academic community, the extent to which they've kind of published within that academic community would kind of set them apart. And I think that probably is somewhat the case, right? I mean, I don't think know, analysts are publishing. Yeah, they don't. Well, they, they're not. They, they, they're not t- t- but, but, uh, like, well, again, define what we mean by publishing. Now, if we can't start including have papers in MIT Sloan, etc., yeah. if that kind of counts as publishing, and I think it kind of it does uh, should within this community, then then I think there is there the, is a the lot people of that who publish on. are not on the teams. They're they're that's what's that's what's changing there, a little there, bit. There are some exceptions. Some, so, but interesting, interesting. But there, here's here's something from Namita, our former student, who's now publicly announced she's moving to Seattle. There you go. In the 
hockey team, the new hockey team. She'll happy to talk about hockey, and she published in hockey while she was with the Eagles. While yeah. she's working in football, but you can't yeah. do football. Yeah, that's the way. Yeah. So, so, so Luke, you're allowed to Luke, do something else, but not our, that. Our friend Luke Bourne runs analytics for the Sacramento Kings, and he's got papers all the time. But yeah. he's, but he's not necessarily doing basketball papers. In fact, one of the best known papers in the history of the MIT research, probably the most commonly quoted anecdote or empirical observation from the MIT research papers, is from Luke's paper about Messi where he says even when he's walking, he's creating space. Space, right, I yeah. remember that. It's a neat, neat thing. All right, other, pl- other, other little developments on the, on the research front. You know, the big data bowl that the NFL did last year, which Adi's team, Adi's, one of some of his students from his, from his lab placed in the finals in this thing, they were about, it was about, it was about the, the routes that receivers were running. They wanted to automatically code routes from the XY data. But if you can do it with, with receivers and you can do it with other positions, and the NFL grabbed one of these teams after the contest, and said, hey, let's look at some other positions as well. And they looked at defensive linemen. And from that, they realized there's a, there's a handful of patterns that are most common for defensive linemen to run. These loops, especially these edge rushers, they run these loops. And as a result, there was a new drill this year at the NFL Combine. They put the linemen through this drill where they ran around these, they ran a figure eight, essentially, around these two big loops, which mimics the 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 moves that they most commonly make or one of the most common moves they make edge, as edge rushers. So it's this phenomenal thing that's even very quickly happening where they go from XY data, the motion tracking data, through the big bowl contest and into the combine on the floor of the of the Lucas Oil Center in Indianapolis, the guys are doing different drills as a result of the contest that you're your students did yeah. last year. Yeah. Running straight turns out to not be the only way to measure. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was just. You're, gonna, you're referring to the forty yard dash, which I'm is just for, inter- for all these. I, I'm just kind of interested in the kind of the, the, the culture of this, in the sense that like there must have been scouts for many many years saying that like something like a I, I, the, like scouting scouts must kind of propose combine type of exercise all the time that they feel like it would be even more prescriptive or 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 prospective than than. Um, than you know the current like slate. We always talk about the combine being like, oh you know, well, how I, how relevant is this forty yard dash for quarterbacks? There must be people kind I, of proposing to improve the combine all the time. Well, the, and uh, now we but did we have to wait for this analytics support for it to actually happen? Well, two two things. They get they get workouts. They get private workouts yeah. at their at, at their facilities for some players where they can do anything they want to. But you got you're going against the we've always done it this way stuff. Yeah, you know, in, in any community, it's no indictment of the scouts any more than it is any other community. There are processes. There's so much inertia to what you've been doing. Yeah, I just, I, I guess, to a certain extent, like the, you know, I, I'm, I'm more just kind of intrigued by the possibility that analytics, specifically in this case, was the sort of like, you well, know, I love the, this example. Well, it was the, the thing that kind is, of it flipped it over. This is a fantastic point. This is a yeah. fantastic point that that we see. This is in some way. This is one of the great things that analytics does. They discovered something and could quantify it, and they could make it an objective yeah. observation that this is a very important thing that happens on the field. And in and, this case, it seems to have represented somewhat of a tipping point in whether or not it actually got adopted. Yeah, 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 terrifically, terrifically. No, I was just going to say this builds on what our 830 guest Sarah Bailey said. She said that a lot of the time she spends thinking about what are things that she can do that would actually, in analytics, that would actually make a difference. And this is something that was derived from analytics yeah. that actually got adopted. So it made me think of her, la- and then her last exact comment was that about she spends as much time doing stuff and convincing people but also thinking what would actually be used and valuable well and it's just it's this particular category of analytics where big data is kind of at its best like we can cast a broad net and we can distill it 
and we might capture something that other people aren't capturing right now. And or, or even if they do already have a sense of it, we can make it more objective and therefore it has more persuasive power when it comes to creating new things. Two other quick items before we go to our over-under segment. Just We could spend all day on these, but just quickly. Last night, Super Tuesday, do we have any analytics? Does, does our analytics orientation give us any insightful perspective on what's going on with the Democratic primary, especially as we just have... You know, a third of the delegates were, you know, basically voted on last night. I think it was well played. I mean, this is more political than it is uh, anything, you know, statistical. But the dropping out of uh, of two of the leading sort of moderate candidates really was created a, a pretty good solid block against the Sanders group. Right. And so that was strategic. Strategically. I mean, one thing that's interesting about Sanders, is he polls, he, his polls match what he does. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. What does um, that mean? It mean, means the, pre, the, the pre-election polls have almost matched to oh. the percentage point what actually happens. And so more so than other candidates. Much more so. So Biden, for example, in South Carolina was predicted to have 38% of the vote. He ended up with 48. It was a tremendous difference. I mean, this is, it, it, it changed the, the entire race. That yeah. South Carolina lack of projection, failure to forecast that he was going to dominate in South Carolina, changed the entire well, I'm, election. I'm sure you saw the data last night when they were describing the fraction of people that were deciding within the last two days mm-hmm. and how many of them went for Biden. It was actually, since South Carolina right. happened, was mm-hmm. a huge overwhelming, number. It was an overwhelming so number. So Sanders yeah. represents a core that doesn't change and is easy to predict and, and easy to measure. And yeah, but, everybody else is But a lot of people will say one that's not growing. But let me just comment. Oh, that's on, a so, political observation. Yeah, I know. Let yeah. me just comment on something different, though. No, that's a statistic. It's a statistical one, but let me also comment on something else. At the end of the day, I view the outcomes of elections as a weighted average problem, and here's what I mean. There are different segments of people. Like, this is not a political statement. It's an observation. Sanders does better with the younger people. That's been known uh, compared to Biden. That's known. And then the relevant question, which actually people on the major news broadcasts are talking about, is... So what fraction of people from that subgroup are going to show up and mm-hmm. vote on election yep. day? Yep. And so to me, elections are weighted average problems, yeah. which is we have different segments of voting groups. We have who they're going to vote for, and we have weights. And, and, now and, and, we, and, we have, and we have particular segments like the Hispanics population that um, – Basically, you know, we we kind of like most analysts or people who watch this kind of feel like are kind of like an underreached, you know, kind of segment of the population. And so a lot of kind of Sanders's successes this time round have been based on, on, on sort of trying to access these these kind of these, these parts of the population that weren't as as kind of accessed. Uh, no, prior, I, I agree with or you. marketed to as much. One, yeah. one other current events question I have for you is coronavirus. Are you all seeing anything that's helping from a modeling analytical perspective or especially, you know, we're interested in what's going on in the U.S. right now. Understandably, do do we just don't have enough data yet that yeah. the models can, can kick in? I, I've been looking at this very closely from the very beginning, not because I'm able to forecast, but I've been looking at the data quality. And what came out of China early is not reliable. There's a widespread belief that they've been testing incredibly. And I just read a paper that was published that reported that of the 70,000 cases that they've diagnosed, only about half were diagnosed through a test, which seems bizarre considering how much effort. Um, So what we're getting out of uh, China's very good at quarantining. That's what an authoritarian government does. I'm not so sure they're good at at widespread, rapid testing. So you're saying we we, we should be careful in how much we extrapolate Extrapolate from those models. And and that's that's one of the reasons why we were so less fearful of what's going on. Because the concerning statistic, I think, at this point is the mortality mortality rate. rate. Because again, you know, I mean, and we're, the we're contagious looking, rate. Well, rate. the contagious, but but we're kind of looking at a situation where it probably is 
it, it looks like it is going to become more widespread. And so, absolutely. And it's, so how you can can you extrapolate? It's a very interesting statistical. Can you extrapolate a mortality rate with any kind of accuracy from kind of the early cases of of of, of, a, of a disease like this? Or, yeah. or I want to give, I give one number. I want to give that. one number that, that you can take away with of the seventeen hundred and sixteen. Healthcare workers that China presumably actually tested and had the disease, five have passed away. Wow. Okay. Now there might be more, but that is about a tenth well, of what the overall so, rate. Yeah. Was no, I mean, again, cutting it down, you have to like. I mean, like, how many of yeah. those healthcare workers were in this older age group? That of course. Seems well, this is one thing I want. Particularly susceptible, yeah. etc. This is one thing that I think is important to emphasize is how sensitive that that mortality rate is to age. Yeah. And in some sense, it feels misleading to even banty around an overall number when it varies so dramatically. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about varying from less than 1% in a young person to over, I don't know, 10%, I think, in the oldest it, and highest risk 15. category. It's also not just age. It's also, do you have some other pre-existing condition? But one, I thought, really interesting use of statistics, which I agreed with, but there's a challenge with it, was we don't know the number of people that actually have the disease, have the virus now. We don't know that number. But what they've been doing online and other studies I've looked at have been doing mathematical inversion. Which And here's what I mean. Let's suppose you know that 20 people have died and you have an estimate, a bit noisy, of the mortality rate. Well, you just invert it. So if 20 people have died and the mortality rate's 2%, then that tells you how many people have been exposed. So they've been doing the reverse. They've been looking at the people with mm-hmm. outcomes, looking at what they believe to be the mortality or the number of people in the hospital rate, and using that to invert, to compute the size mm-hmm. of the population that's likely infected, which I've liked. I've liked the analysis. I have challenge with the rates, yeah, but I like no. the mathematics. Okay. All right, so that's a, a big moving issue that we're keeping an eye on, but some modeling challenges. Um, so we're having a real hard time getting our hands around what the future looks like there. We are down to just a minute and a half, but we have a moment to do our closing. It's cycle. Warden Moneyballs over under. So just one today, fellas, just one, tying us back all the way back to the first half of the show, first quarter of the show. The seed that wins March Madness. March Madness is kicking off for us in like a week and a half. Is that right? Two, we, next week or next, next, two, next Wednesday, next the play-in games Tuesday two or weeks. whatever. Yeah, two, two weeks. Two weeks from now. Over-under set at two and a half seed. A two and a half seed will win March Madness. We've got less than a minute. Shane. I'll take the under, so I think a one or two seed will win March Madness. All right. Adi? Over. Why is over. that? Because there are a lot of so much uncertainty in, in, the, in the NCAA. There's so many outside of one and two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Eric? I'm going the over as well. I, I have to be cons- – well, I think there's it's a Dayton's lot of powerful here. teams. No. What's Duke going to be ranked? Duke might be a three or four seed this oh, year based different... on the rankings. Villanova might be a three oh, or four that's seed. Interesting. And, and so... you guys are prior guys. Duke and Villanova yep. would have been up no. there. So, I'm going the over. That's a, I always I should go after that Eric. Analysis. That's a way better idea <laughs> for me in general. <laughs> it's actually I the... should always go after Eric. I was actually listening to the show, and I updated based on what you guys said earlier in the show. That's why I'm going with the over. Shane, I'm going over also. I'm going to but I should go after Eric. All right, guys. That's been another two hours here. Another Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Matty D, Zach Drabkin, Dion Simpkins. For the whole crew here, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. This has been Cade Massey. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>